what is the biggest threat to the church? And not to, to the church, but to the joy in your life, to being content, to growing in your relationship with God. Now, some people might say it's a wicked government. And I'd say, nah, that's not it. We saw how the Romans hated the church during its early years, and yet the gospel spread. People under persecution grew in God's grace, and the result was actually more joyful Christians, more Christians that were content, and the spread of the gospel. We see today in areas where Christians are being persecuted the same thing. The gospel continues to spread. Those Christians continue to grow in God's grace and mature in who He has made them to be. And they are more joyful. Well, maybe it's false doctrine. Maybe that's the biggest threat to the church. In fact, we see several different places in the Bible that addresses different types of false doctrine. So I would definitely say, yeah, it's a threat. It's a threat to the church. It's a threat to us growing in Christ. It's a threat to our joy. Yet I don't think it's the biggest threat. Throughout the history of the church, we have seen false doctrines rise up, and the church, being threatened by the false doctrine, dig into the Word, dig into their Bibles, and correct the false doctrine. In fact, that's how systematic theology developed. The reason why we even have something, a term called systematic theology, systematic theology is like, what does the Bible say about this issue? The reason why we even have systematic theology is because of false doctrine. For example, uh, Arius claimed that Jesus did not exist forever as part of the de- as part of God, as part of the Godhead. That he was a created being. So, a fiery little African named Athanasius decided that he was going to refute Arius. And they, they debated back and forth, and we can get really into this church history of Arius and Athanasius, but eventually the idea or the, the systematic theology that, de, that turned into what we call the Trinity was developed from Arius's false teaching. And so we have this, uh, this theology called the Trinity where we believe the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all co-equal parts of the Godhead developed because of a false doctrine. It's kind of cool to think about, actually, how God has used false doctrines throughout the century to help develop our systematic theology. We get better theology when false doctrines pop up. Kind of interesting, huh? So although false doctrine is a threat, I think as long as we hold to the Bible, those false doctrines will be corrected and will actually develop better doctrine. So what is the biggest threat? If it's, not, if it's not persecution, if it's not false doctrine, I believe the biggest threat to the church throughout the history of the church has been and is today legalism. Legalism is the idea that you can earn God's favor. And if I can earn God's favor, and if I can get more favor from God based upon my actions, then it actually begins to develop a hierarchy within Christianity, within the church. And we begin to see some Christians as better and some Christians as lesser. You can actually produce works that makes, you, that makes God like you more, that makes God favor you more, that makes you more righteous. And some would even go so far to say that if you work hard enough, God even owes you. A couple weeks ago, we called that let's make a deal theology, right? Where if I just work hard enough, if I just do the right things, then God owes me a good life. Though persecution and false doctrine are easily identifiable, legalism is actually difficult to identify. And I would argue it's difficult to identify because it is the world's operating system. 
that you get your value based off of what you produce. Think about it. Everywhere you look you, in the world, you are either more valuable or less valuable by what you produce. You go to work every day, and you're judged on what you produce. If you don't produce at work, are you valuable to your employer? No. So what do you do? What happens? They let you go because you're no longer valuable. And you see hierarchies at work all the time, in school, in sports, everywhere you look in this world. It's operating off of a legalistic system that says you are more or less valuable based on what you produce. And so naturally, because that's the world's operating system, it's the, it's the operating system we are constantly interacting in, we would think that that's the way God works as well. That you are more or less valuable, you are more or less righteous, you are more or less favored by what you produce. And as a result, I think we all struggle with legalism. Every single one of us struggles with legalism. Every single one of us is what I would call a recovering legalist at the best. And every time I think I have overcome my legalism, God opens a new area in my heart where I didn't even know I was being legalistic. But it pops up in all kinds of different areas. Like, what kind of music do you like? Do you even listen to secular music? If you do, do you like country music? I mean, when I was in high school, I thought country music, and I'm really sorry, I apologize to anyone that likes country music, I thought country music was for the lowly, for the intellectually inefficient. <laughs> and I turned my nose up to the lowly country music. And I can remember my first day of my freshman year in college, and I walked into my dorm room, and my, you know, my roommate and I were get, trying to get to know each other, and what's usually one of the first questions you ask? What kind of music do you like, right? And I was like, I like just about anything but country. And right then he walked over to the wall and he pinned up a Garth Brooks poster. Boom, and he looked over at me and was like, all right, buddy. And actually, I developed a pretty good relationship with him, and he taught me, he was a very intelligent guy, and he taught me that country music is actually good. <laughs> but it, do you see how we do that in all kinds of things? We, we pick something that we identify with, and we want to make it the, the better thing. And so I am more worthy, I am more holy, I am just better than you because I like Pick a sports team. Because I like, pick a music. And this happens in the church too. How often do we do this when it comes to worship? I am more holy, I am more righteous because I like contemporary music. And you just like that old stuff. It's boring. Wait, you like an organ? Do you know that only legalistic people listen to organs? I'm clearly more righteous than you. I mean, we do this all the time in all kinds of situations. We struggle with legalism. We are all recovering legalists. And the result of legalism in our lives, I think there's two, re two huge results. One is either pride. We puff ourselves up because we're clearly better. I'm clearly better than you because I like this. I'm clearly better than you because I know my doctrine and you just don't. So we puff ourselves up and we become prideful. Or the other result is despair. Because we realize we will never add up. We'll never be good enough. No matter how hard I study doctrine, I just can't remember. What does the Trinity mean again? What on earth is pneumatology? I can't remember any of this, and I'll never, I'll never measure up to those theological heavyweights, so I'm just never going to be righteous enough. Or maybe you just struggle with sin. Maybe there is a sin in your life that is plaguing you. 
And you just can't get over it. You, you just can't, you go back and back again to your anger issues. You have severe anger issues and you go over and over again to these anger issues. And so you, you learn that you're just not good enough. If only I didn't struggle with anger like so-and-so. Or maybe it's anxiety and you have severe anxiety issues and you realize that it's because you're not trusting God enough. And you see other people that just seem like they don't have anxiety, and so you just wish you could have the faith that they do. If only you could be a saint, like the one person that doesn't have anxiety issues. Or maybe it's lust. And you're struggling with lust, and you swore to yourself that you'd never look at that girl that way again. And yet, you did it again. If only you could be more holy, like so-and-so. But you realize that you're never going to be there. And so you start to fall into despair. Those are the results of legalism. Despair and pride. And legalism is not new to our culture. Throughout the history of humanity, legalism has been the operating system of people in rebellion against God. It plagued the culture Jesus lived in and is one of the major themes, if not the main point of the Sermon on the Mount, is a refutation against legalism. Jesus is going to directly confront the Pharisees and the legalistic practices of that day. And not only will he do that, but then he will offer a better way. And that is what we will study today as we continue in our series following. The series is a look through or a study through the Sermon on the Mount. And with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus challenges the Israelites, will you follow me? Will you follow Jesus and his grace? Or will you stay stuck in the legalistic ways of the religious elite? Essentially, he's saying, will you follow me? Or will you stay in your legalism? So last week we began the Sermon on the Mount and we studied the Beatitudes and we saw how he directly began confronting the ideas of who is righteous and who is not. Who is blessed and who is not. So in that culture, there was this idea that if you were wealthy, if you were rich in spirit, if you didn't have a need to mourn, if you, were, if you were living already the perfect righteous life, if you were strong and not meek, then you were the ones that were blessed. If you hated Rome so much that you were ready to declare war on Rome, then you were the ones that were blessed. And Jesus totally flips this upside down. So in the Beatitudes, instead of those that are blessed are the, the rich, they don't need to mourn, they're not takers, they've never experienced injustice, and are definitely not part of the problem of injustice. They don't need to show mercy. Are religious on the outside for everyone to see, even though their hearts are dead. He corrects it with, broken have the kingdom. The spiritually broken those who realize that they need their dependence upon God. The mourners will be comforted. The meek will inherit the earth. Those who are hungry for justice will be satisfied. Those who extend mercy will experience God's mercy to its fullness and will actually understand God's mercy. The pure in heart will see God and peacemakers will be associated with God. Sounds like something everyone in the community would want, right? Everyone in the community would look towards this new list that Jesus gives and they're like, yeah, sign me up, right? Well, let's read. Starting in verse 10, we'll finish the Beatitudes and then get into some other explanations. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
You are the light, or you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall it be salt? How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to, God, to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. For I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, there's a lot going on there. So let's jump back over to verse 10. Verse 10 through 11. So verse 10 is the last Beatitudes. And I saved it just for this week because I wanted to dive into this. But 11 and 12 will then describe or go a little bit further into depth in this last Beatitude. So the last Beatitude, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then 11 and 12 will describe it. Blessed are you, you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus lets us know up front that although it seems like people would at least tolerate Christianity or a Christian ethic, they will not. So when you read this Beatitudes, you think, man, the society would be so great if everybody had this attitude. And, and, everybody will, and everybody hears this and will embrace this, right? And Jesus, with the last beatitude in verses 11 and 12, to let us know up front that the world is not going to like this list. The world is not going to like how Jesus has flipped upside down who is actually blessed and who is not. So why would the world have such a strong emotional hate-filled response to Christians. And I think it comes from when he keys in on, in verse 11, on my account. Not persecuted for your own account. Or persecuted because you have a specific political ideology. Or persecuted because you don't like the current economic system. Or persecuted because... Fill in the blank. The persecution that Jesus gives a congratulations for is when we are so connected with him. We submit to him because we recognize his authority in our life. And we recognize that our relationship with him determines everything else in our life. And when we recognize that, this kind of connection will bring about a persecution. And I think that this shows that ultimately it comes down to the human desire to be our own God. That's what brings about this persecution. When we are so connected to Jesus that we are willing to submit to him, that we recognize him as God, that's what brings about the persecution. Because people and the struggle humanity has had since the beginning, since the fall, we have struggled with our own desire to be our own God. God. So to say that there is a moral authority other than ourselves is blasphemous to a culture and to a people, to humanity that has thrown off the shackles of authority. We want to be our own God. So anything that points back to a God that we need to submit to is offensive. So we can expect others to revile and persecute when we are pointing to a greater moral authority. Not that we are the moral authority. I think that's important for us to recognize. I am not the moral authority. 
Otherwise, we're just switching a relative moral authority for another relative of moral authority, right? But God is an objective moral authority. And when we point to Him as the moral authority, the final authority on morality, then persecution will come. Because it's offensive to people who want to be their own God. Now, as we studied last week, the term blessed here, it's, it's kind of a difficult term. Makarios is the Greek term. It's kind of a difficult term to translate into English. And the best, really the best, so there's other places where we, where we read blessed and it means like God shows his favor on you. But this term, the best translation I think we really have is congratulations. Congratulations is what you tell somebody when, when you're ready to celebrate something, right? When, something, when, the, when the conditions are right, that, you're, that you recognize that there's some deeper joy going on. And so what do you say? You say, congratulations, you had a baby. Congratulations, you're married. Congratulations. So this congratulation comes with this being reviled and hated. And last week we talked about the idea of the here but not yet. That Jesus has already had victory over evil, that Jesus has already had victory over sin, that we no longer have to be slaves to sin, that we can be free from sin. But yet, he has not consummated that. So although he has had the victory, there are still battles going on. Although he has the victory, and you can be free from sin, that doesn't mean that our struggle with sin is completely over. But it will be, when Jesus makes a new heaven and new earth. So that's the idea of the here, but not yet. And I think this is another example of the here, but not yet. Congratulations! Yours is the kingdom of heaven. You have victory over sin. That sin that has plagued you. Those things that you have hated that you do. Those outbursts of anger. That anxiety that plagues you. The lust that plagues you. You have victory over that. But you don't get to experience the full reward of heaven yet. So congratulations, because you are currently connected to God, you can have more joy in your life. Congratulations, because you are so in tune with Jesus that people revile you. And this connection will actually produce joy in your life, even in the midst of persecution. Congratulations, you have that. But this congratulations is also a picture of the not yet Though you get this relationship with Jesus here and now, and he has freed you from sin here and now, and you can have joy here and now, it will fully be realized in heaven. Your reward will be great in heaven. So we have here to be grown, to be growing and maturing in the grace of God that he has bestowed upon us, and the not yet a greater reward in heaven. So after challenging the idea of who would be blessed, Jesus then explains how they could be influencers in the midst of persecution. So we've got this idea of things flipped upside down and that you'll be blessed even in the midst of persecution. And then he begins to explain how you will be an influencer in the midst of persecution. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So there's a lot of explanations on uh, what the salt is a reference to here. Uh, and one of the reasons why that is is salt was used for many different re ways in the ancient world. It was a preservative. It was used for flavoring. It was used as fertilizer. There was a lot of different ways that salt was used. And so a lot of people latch on to all those different ways and instead of trying to get into all the different explanations of how salt was used, I think, I think we can just skip to the point. What is the point? Salt is beneficial for society. That's the point. So the encouragement is, as you hold to what Christ is saying, even though you're not valued in culture, even though you are looked down on, even though you're hated, even though you're reviled, if you hold on to what Christ is saying, if you hold on to the principles found in the Word, 
you will still be a benefit to society. The values of Western civilization that we know of, life, liberty, mercy, love, seeing value in other humans, these came from a Christian world view. And as we become a post-Christian culture, we will see these values fade. And as we see these values fade, life, liberty, mercy, love, seeing value in others, that's just the tip of the iceberg of the list of values that come from the Christian worldview. But as we see these values fade, it will become more and more important that we hold tight to what Jesus is teaching. It will become more and more important that we live out a biblical world view. But what happens when the church begins to look and act like the rest of the world? When we decide we will be our own God, when we assign value based on what people do, instead of being based on everyone being made in the image of God. What happens when, as a church, we decide that you are only as valuable as your most disgusting sin? What happens when, as a church, we quit being merciful? but instead we become angry and bitter. And instead of being a place where people can come and hear the good news that Jesus died for their most disgusting sins, just like he died for our most disgusting sins, we get, begin to put up roadblocks. And we begin to tell people, if you want to come here, you better clean yourself up. If you want to come here, you better quit looking like that nasty person over there. Before you step foot in a church, you got to quit using drugs. Before you step foot in a church, you better straighten out your sexuality issues. Before you step foot in a church, make sure you understand and start to live the moral code that the Bible, biblical worldview lays out. When we begin to put up roadblocks and we become, instead of merciful and grace-filled, but angry and bitter, then we are no longer good for anything. How shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. I think this is a very stern warning about how the church should behave and how the church should interact with the world. So we are no longer showing the world that each person has value in God's eyes because they were made in his image. And then we are just as good for society as the rest of the world. Now what's interesting here is that salt doesn't actually lose its flavor. Sodium chloride is a stable compound and doesn't break down very easily. But in the ancient world, salt contained many impurities. And salt, being more soluble than the impurities, would begin to be leached out and eventually uh, would leave what seemed like uh, saltlessness. And it would, it would leave what you would think was salt as useless. At that moment, the salt was no longer good for anything. It was no longer beneficial for the people that were using it. And so at that point, it would be thrown away. As a church, we are called to be distinctively different than the world. And I think one of the main reasons we are distinctively different is offering grace and mercy to others. Well, holding tight 
the moral principles we find in biblical Christianity. There's a lot of churches that will go in two directions. They'll either go one way to where they will hold tightly to mercy and grace and therefore leave all biblical authority behind. And they'll say, come, you are welcome, sins and all. In fact, we welcome your sins and just hold tightly to your sins. And the other way is, that some churches run, is the legalistic way. Don't come in until you've cleaned yourself up. Don't come in until you make sure you know that you're living a high enough standard. Both of those are wrong. And actually, both of those come from the same thing. Both of those come from the desire to be our own God. The side that says, come in, your sins are welcome. In fact, you're so welcome, we won't ever challenge you on your sins, is living from this idea that they can have the moral authority, that they are their own gods. And so they call what the moral authority is. The other side is doing the same thing. Instead of showing God's mercy, instead of showing God's grace, instead of showing that God has died for your sins just like he's died for my sins, they're saying, we are the judge. And we have taken place of God. Both are operations of the flesh, not of the Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit is controlling us, we reject both. And we recognize that whoever you are, you come into this room, you come into the church, no matter what sin you've been through, no matter how disgusting it is, an image bearer of God in need of his grace and his mercy. And that is actually his grace and his mercy that will change you. You can never be good enough. But God's mercy and God's grace will be bestowed upon you anyway. And it is through his mercy and his grace that your heart will begin to change. Those disgusting sins that you hate in your life, that you swore you'd never do, and yet you continue to return to them, the only way to actually ever stop them is through God's mercy and through God's grace. Not by trying harder and not by saying they're okay. But when we take on the world's operating system, when we become either one of those two, we're no longer good for anything. When our desire to be our own God starts to, uh, start to control the way we work, we're no longer good for anything. And then we become like the salt that is leached out and are no longer beneficial for the world. And this is a very stern warning. Next, Jesus will give another example of how we can impact the world. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven." So it, what's interesting is later on in the sermon, Jesus will warn about the hypocrisy of doing good deeds in front of others. Here he says, you're a city on the hill. Let others see your good works. And later on, he's going to warn about doing good deeds in front of others. We'll talk more about that when we get to it. But I think that, that what's actually going on is that the light on a hill or lighting up a house isn't about going out and doing good work so that others see you. And then, you know, see how great you are. Or how righteous you are. I think to help us understand what's really going on, it's helpful to know that a light, well, to put it really, like, plainly, a light illuminates. It guides the way. It makes it so that we are no longer light lost in the dark. So we are to help illuminate, to shine a light into darkness so people can come to know Christ. I guess one question is, how can we be peacemakers and also light the way for our culture in, a, in how they can flourish? And I think the answer is we live out this light living, this illumination in our church community. 
We live authentic Christian lives together. We model what healthy relationships look like. Come to Christian's uh, Sunday school class at 9.30. We'll be talking a lot more about that. But we model that. We model what healthy Christian morals look like. We model what healthy disagreements look like. We model what offense and reconciliation looks like. We model living in community so that we know each other's needs and we help address them. And as we do this, we create pockets of flourishing in our communities. In a community that has gone beyond Christianity, that is post-Christianity, we develop pockets of flourishing and thriving communities. And the result should be that Christians living in a healthy community would look different. And the world would look at us and ask, what is different? Why are they not angry? Why are they not bitter? Why do they have healthy relationships? I want a friendship like that. Wow, that group over there, there's a bunch of really healthy married people. And they're married late into their life. Celebrating 50, 60, 70 years of marriage. I want a marriage like that. And so as we understand God's word and we submit to it, as we live it out, we become a light to the world. And the world can look on these pockets of flourishing and say, that's what life really should be. So at this point in the sermon, because we have to remember the Sermon on the Mount is, in fact, a sermon, Jesus has caught their attention with an introduction that absolutely flipped their ideas upside down. Who they thought was blessed. Who they thought was righteous. In fact, some might ask if he is trying to undermine Scripture. Because their relationship to scripture or how they interpreted scripture was being challenged. So they might ask, wait a second, is he trying to undermine scripture? And I think that's the way that legalists often operate. If you don't come to the same conclusion about scripture as they do, they just claim that you either don't know or are undermining Scripture. So this is what the Pharisees would do. And it's an attack still used today. Sometimes people come to different conclusions. Not because they haven't read the Scripture. Not because they're trying to undermine the Bible. But because they're using a different, or I would say they're even using a similar hermeneutic. Now for those of you who don't know what a hermeneutic is, a hermeneutic is basically the way that you read a Bible. So there are different hermeneutics uh, most evangelicals use what's called a normative hermeneutic. Now, some will say, use the term literal. I don't like the term literal because when you are reading something literally, you read, let's say, Song of Solomon, literally. And in Song of Solomon, he says, she has 32 sheep all lined up in a row. And someone who, who says, I'm a literalist, the other person might say, well, you're not really a literalist because you don't believe that that's actually 32 teeth lined up in a row. So I like to use the term normative. Normative means that you search for the genre. What is the genre of this particular passage? Is it poetry? Is it a parable? Is it history? Is it law? And as you search for the genre, then you say, how do I, how do I apply the rules of that genre and pull out the principles? So when I read, she has 32 sheep, white sheep, all in a row. I can say that's not literal, that's a metaphor. It's poetry, it's a metaphor, that she has all of her teeth, and they're straight, and they're white. That's it, all right? So, so that's why I like the term normative. Now, you can have the same normative hermeneutic, the same normative reading, and still come to some different interpretations. And that's okay. That doesn't mean that someone else that doesn't come to the same interpretation as you is undermining Scripture. And actually, when you start to use that kind of language, that you're just undermining Scripture, that you don't actually understand like I understand, you begin to attack the person instead of dealing with the ideas. And we can have healthy discussions about different places we disagree 
in Scripture if we stick to the Scripture itself instead of attacking the other person. So that, but that's what, the, that's what the Pharisees want to do, right? They want to say, you don't really understand Scripture like I understand Scripture, or you don't, uh, or you're just trying to undermine Scripture. You don't really care about Scripture like I want to care about Scripture. And so that's what they're doing to Jesus. But Jesus has all the authority when it comes to interpretation. In fact, I would say we have a normative reading of Scripture because Jesus has, or Jesus had, an enorm- a normative reading of Scripture. So he's going to clarify. It's not that he's trying to undermine Scripture, but he actually knows Scripture and he knows it better. And so we pick up in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So first we need to understand that the law and the prophets are a way of saying what we would consider the Old Testament. The Old Testament consists of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. That has a lot of law in it, but there's also a lot of other genres in there. In fact, Moses writes some poetry in there. There's some history in there. Then after that, there's the books of history, which tells the story of creation, uh, sorry, all the way from uh, the conquest to the restoration period. We can talk a lot more about that some other time, but that's basically it. That's, that's it in a nutshell, right? Then there's the book of wisdoms, Job, Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. These are to pass along wisdom. And finally, there are the prophets. These were a bunch of men that God used to communicate a message to Israel and also surrounding nations. The messages were almost always a message of repentance. You have sinned, it's time to repent or bad consequences are coming. So Jesus comes along and begins to to dismantle what they thought was true. Now notice that. It's what they thought was true. It wasn't actually the truth. Jesus isn't dismantling the truth. He is dismantling what they thought was true. And this leads to a question. Is he going to deconstruct or dismantle God's word? In short, the answer is no. Well, let's take a little closer look. The word abolish is kataluo, and it means to destroy or dismantle. When referring to the Bible, it meant to disobey. The idea is that if you disobey, it was because you didn't believe. I think that still applies today. When we don't follow the Bible, it's because we think we know better. We think we can do better. So we're not believing, we're not trusting in the Bible. And that's the idea that Jesus is addressing. Because he's flipping their belief system upside down, they think he is here to disobey and therefore disregard the Bible. So what's the opposite of disobey? To obey, right? That's the opposite of disobey. But that's not what Jesus says. I have not, I don't think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. The word Fulfill in the Greek is plerao. It means to cause, to happen, or to make complete. Throughout the uh, Matthew's Gospel, when you read about Jesus fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy, this word is used. So we see that Jesus isn't here to dismantle the Scripture, but to fulfill it, to make it complete, to make it happen. One of the biggest takeaways is that all of what we would call the Old Testament was pointing towards Christ. It's all leading up to Him. And He completes it. He fulfills it. Verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. The term truly I say to you is Jesus' way of saying, I'm about to make a clarifying remark, and you better pay attention. What I'm about to say is very important. The iota and the dot are both references to the Hebrew alphabet. Iota is actually the Hebrew letter yod, which is like the, one of the smaller letters. And the dot is the smallest line used to distinguish one letter from another letter. So the idea is that even the smallest aspect of the law, 
the way the New King James says it is not a jot, or the Old King James is not a jot or tittle. The smallest aspect of the law, not even one little line or curved line, will pass. Reinforcing the idea uh, that the law is, will stay is the phrase, heaven and earth will pass away. The idea is as long as the earth is around, so will the law be around. And then he says, until. And it's really important for us to catch this. Until all is accomplished. Now, if you're an ancient Israelite sitting there listening to Jesus, you might ask, until what is accomplished? This is important stuff. What's going to, what's going to happen? What will make the, the jot and tittle disappear? And the answer is, all of it. Until we see every aspect of the Bible come true, all of it will be useful. All of it will continue to point us to where we need to go. All of it will continue to point towards Christ. Now some people will hear this and ask, are we under the Old Testament law then? Should we continue Old Testament sacrifices? I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. He is saying it all points to Him and will continue to point to Him until the very end. Until He accomplishes it all. Now, He did meet the requirements of the law, Thus, we don't need to practice the Old Testament law. But there are other aspects that have not been fulfilled. The Davidic kingdom found in 2 Samuel 7 is one example. And that will be fulfilled by Christ one day. So all the Old Testament points towards Jesus and has either been or will be fulfilled by Jesus. Then he gives us a therefore. Verse 19, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So the therefore is letting us know that because it all points to him and will be finished by him, anyone, that means all people, who relaxes or annuls or tries to make all of the scripture or any part of the scripture unimportant will be called least. Least means to be small or to have little significance. But, and here is a contrast, he's contrasting those who try to make God's word unimportant with those who are making God's word important. So, those who teach them. And what's interesting is that the, it's not just teach or make a big deal out of, but actually do them. Those who teach and do. Once again, the idea is, if you do them, it is because you think they are apply to you. They are important, so you practice them. I think it's important for us to remember that Jesus hasn't died for our sins yet. He's, in the, he's still in his earthly ministry. That he is teaching Israelites about their scriptures. So they were still under the law until the day Jesus dies on their behalf. And after he dies, the price has been paid. He has made us righteous. The Israelites no longer have to obey the law. But that doesn't make the law unimportant. Sometimes Christians get this idea that the Old Testament is not important. Because the Old Testament points to Jesus, it will always be important. So although we are not bound by the law, although we don't have to practice Old Testament sacrifices, although now we can eat bacon, thank God, reading and understanding Old Testament helps us understand Jesus more. So Jesus gives us this introduction that flips everything around. He makes the people question whether or not he's even going to abolish the law. And then he reemphasizes the importance of Scripture. And then verse 20, he picks up, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And that's like a sucker punch. In ancient Israel, the Pharisees and the religious leaders were those who were rich in spirit. 
They were the ones who excelled in righteousness. They were the super special spiritual people. And what do you see saying here? He's saying that unless you exceed, not just match them in their righteousness, not just kind of come around, maybe, maybe if you were just a little bit better, you could almost become like them. No, he says you have to exceed their righteousness. You will not enter the kingdom. You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And to the Pharisees, this would have been a huge punch. You could picture, as he's standing there giving the sermon, his disciples right in front of him, who who believe that he is the Messiah, who are hanging on his every word, and the multitudes just outside of them that that know they're never going to make it to the Pharisees' level are absolutely heartbroken. They're like, wait a second. We, we already can't live up to the Pharisee standard. How on earth are we ever going to make it? And then the Pharisees just standing outside of there are shaking their fist angry like, are you kidding me? We are the righteous in Israel. And this, I think, is the thesis statement of the entire Sermon on the Mount. Because in Israel, the thought was, if you could just try hard enough, if you could just obey enough, you could make it. And the the thesis statement is, no human will ever be good enough. That's the point. Don't rely on your own righteousness. You can't do it. You can't make it. All of the Old Testament, all of the Scriptures are pointing to Jesus. And He is the only one that can make you righteous. He's the only one that can free you from your sin. There is absolutely no other way. So how about you? Are you still trying to earn your righteousness? Do you still think you can do it? Maybe you're puffed up with pride because you are a legalist and you see how good you've been. Your righteousness will never cut it. Maybe you are desperate because you have been ensnared by sin and you just want to be free. You can never do it on your own. The only way to have true freedom and true righteousness is through faith and trust in Christ. All of the Scripture points to Him. He fulfills it all. And He can make you righteous. Dear Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word. That You have made us righteous, that You accomplish, that You fulfill all of Your Word, that all of Your Word points towards You. And we pray that as we continue to live it out, help us to be the salt and the light to this earth. That people would come to know and grow in You because we have come to know and are growing in you. In your name we pray. Amen.